Thank you, uh, uh, and uh, thank you to the organisers for inviting me to speak. So, uh, there's not much intellectual rigour in this. This is, this is for you to rest your brains during lunchtime, I think. It's, that's my medical advice to you. I'm Kevin Fong. I, uh, I'm a consultant anaesthetist at UCLH. I'm a lecturer in the physiology department. I lecture a course in extreme environment physiology. I've been at this university forever. I, uh, I, uh, I did studied astrophysics here. Uh, and then discovered that medical students weren't really that clever, and then so decided to do medicine afterwards. Uh, and I was lucky enough in all of that to then get a chance to work with NASA with Medical Operations Group, uh, just as a student intern at first, and then I kept returning and doing a bit more research, and as a visiting research fellow, uh, I went back a few times. Uh, this lecture really is about that, that dual life that I've run between being a junior doctor at times, and then getting on a plane and going out to NASA and trying to reconcile those two. Um, and uh, uh, it's partly about how far we've come in the last 100 years. So you've got to start with this. Uh, I, I thought this was from J.J. Abraham's reboot of Star Trek, and then someone in the lecture pointed out that it's from one of the earlier remakes. They were a bigger geek than I was. But anyway. Um, I, this is some far-flung vision of what the future is supposed to be. Uh, and, and, and it's difficult to know whether we'll continue to get to this point, whether we'll get to the point where we can move forwards uh, and explore beyond that which we've already done. Um, but in the context of all of that, you need to look at how far we've come in just a century. So if you look back 100 years, just 10 short decades to where we've been, this is a map of the world that Scott would have worked off at, uh, it, it drawn in 1897. So this is the sort of maps that were around at the time of the heroic age of exploration. Um, and you'll see, you, if you can just read at the bottom there, it says the supposed Antarctic continent. So 100, just over 100 years ago, no, I mean, uh, you know, less than 100 years ago, in fact, there is still white space on the map of the world which is untrodden by any human foot. No one's ever been there, no one's uh, ever been able to go there because human physiology won't allow it. And it is almost 100 years to the day that they're discovering the bodies of the Antarctic expedition that was run by Scott uh, at the South Pole. Um, and this is a picture of Scott's expedition team. Uh, and they're there, they look pretty tired and they look pretty miserable. They look miserable for two reasons. Uh, one is that out of shot somewhere, there's, in addition to that British flag, there's a Norwegian flag, and, and it got there before their British flag did. Uh, and the second thing is that at this point they're pretty worn out, and they know there's a reasonable chance they may not survive this expedition. And indeed they don't. Scott and all of the people in this photograph die within 12 miles of their depot um, in 1912. So 100 years ago, the South Pole has never been explored. Now, what does Scott die of? Scott dies essentially of malnutrition, but principally of hypothermia. Now, when you're looking at what we've been able to do in the intervening century since Scott's exploration, uh, we've been able to do remarkable things to push the envelope of human survival and allow people to survive things that were just routinely fatal in history. Now, now in my journeys, I've, I've been lucky enough to make a couple of documentaries for BBC. And in those travels, I came across uh, the story of uh, this woman, uh, Anna Bagenholm, 
who was a Norwegian uh, skier uh, who had an accident around about 12 years ago now. Uh, and this is, this is the Telegraph's account of it. She falls, well, she catches an edge, she's skiing in somewhere called the Black Hole in the Kajolan Mountains. The name should have given her a clue, I think. A dangerous place to ski. She catches an edge and her head goes straight into this ice covering a river that flows underneath. Now she manages to turn face up with her face in the air pocket, but is trapped and her colleagues try to pull her out and are unable to remove her from that. So she's freezing slowly to death. Now she's a doctor, a junior doctor, and her two colleagues are junior doctors, so they know how serious the situation is. So they call for the ski patrol, but the ski patrol are nowhere near them. They call for a rescue helicopter, but the helicopter is based out of Tromso and is um, uh, at least 200 miles away, so an hour's flying time. Uh, and in the meantime, they've got nothing. Uh, she stops moving at some time in the, in the, in the next hour, and uh, when they manage finally, with the help of some locals, to pull her out of the hole, she is blue and lifeless. Uh, and she's had a cardiac arrest, and she's probably been down for the best part of an hour by the time they get her out of the hole. The helicopter arrives, uh, and it can't land because of the terrain, so it drops a cable down. They, they've started resuscitating at this point, so she's already been an hour arrested, and they pull her up to the helicopter. Now, they've still got to fly an hour back to the main hospital, and they continue the resuscitation. Uh, they fly back, resuscitating all the way. When they arrive at Tromso, her time without spontaneous heartbeat has been perhaps two hours, best part of. Um, they draw blood at this point to look at how badly deranged her physiology is. Now, to put this into context, and for those of you who aren't medics, uh, when we have a cardiac arrest that comes through the front door and any casualty, we generally ask when the time of arrest was supposed to have been and how long we've been without rhythm. Now, when that number is more than about 15 minutes, we're usually pretty dim about the prospect. If it's been more than half an hour, uh, someone's usually thinking about how long it will be productive to continue to resuscitate because the chances of success are really so small. She's now been down for over, well, may maybe as much as two hours. And for some reason, the team decide to continue resuscitation, principally driven by the fact that she's cold. She arrives with a core body temperature of 13.7 degrees centigrade. So, so that's, that's about a third of your core temperature now. Um, and they have an adage in medicine, which is that nobody should be pronounced dead until they're warm and dead. That is, when people are extremely cold, the extreme cold can mimic the signs of death. Nevertheless, a two-hour downtime, even when you're that cold, you shouldn't be expecting to get a good result of that. And when they pull blood out of her veins and they analyze that, in terms of the biochemistry, it is a dead person's biochemistry. The account is published in The Lancet as an academic case report. And when you look at it as a physician, you think there's not a chance. I have never seen anyone who has ever survived anything like this derangement. You can't believe that they're gonna get a result. They resuscitate <coughs> excuse me, for another hour. Uh, and, and after what must be nearly three hours of downtime, time without spontaneous circulation, the heart fibrillates, they shock it, and they get a pulse back. Um, amazingly. And from there she goes to intensive care, and a week later she opens her eyes. And it's just unbelievable that she's able to do that, and yet that is her, so second from the left there, within nine months of that accident. And not only does she recover the accident, 
but she almost completely recovers. She's got some paralysis, I think, in the small muscles of her left hand. And she, she qualifies to become a radiologist in the hospital that saved her life. Now, I've met her, and she, she, she very kindly came to lecture to us as medics at the Royal Society of Medicine uh, about a year ago. Uh, and, and she's extremely robust and very strong in will and spirit. And I, I wondered if there was anything about her that might betray a weakness after this massive event. Uh, and as we were walking back from the Royal Society of Medicine, uh, there was a broken water main, and there's water cascading over the pavement into the road. Uh, and I noticed I was walking with her boyfriend, and, and I noticed that she quickened her pace and ran through the water. And I thought, well, maybe that's it. Maybe, you know, she was trapped against running water for a long time before she finally arrested. Maybe she has this complete phobia of the sound of running water. Maybe that's the little weakness that she has. And as I'm thinking this, a bus comes through the massive puddle in the road and splashes <laughs> me and her boyfriend. So not only has she been dead for three hours and survived, but she's still smarter than me. So, <coughs> so what does she need to survive? Okay? What, how do you manage in 10 short decades to manage to engineer her survival when Scott dies 12 miles from health of hypothermia? Well, she needs a number of things, uh, advances in medicine. And although we have this narrative of progress in medicine, these are similarly exploratory events, as, as exploratory as, as Scott's expedition to the Antarctic. Now, many of us know the first human heart transplant was performed in 1967. The first successful human heart transplant was performed in 1967 by Christian Barnard's team in South Africa. Uh, and that's there as one of those iconic medical achievements. But there's a prequel and a sequel to this story that's worth knowing. The prequel is that for almost the entire history of medicine, no one dares operate on the heart with any real expectation of success. In 1897, the same year that that map of, of the supposed Antarctic continent is drawn, Stephen Paget writes a textbook in which uh, he says that anyone who operates on the heart deserves to lose the respect of his colleagues. Um, and even through World War I, where there are a lot of shrapnel injuries, penetrating injuries of the chest, and they, they try to operate on the heart, they are only probing the edges of it, and they, they retreat pretty quickly. Um, and so it's not until... World War II comes along, and a young surgeon called Dwight Harkin, who's looking to make his name in a field that is otherwise hitherto, that is hitherto undeveloped, decides to take on this challenge and develops techniques that allow him to operate on the hearts of soldiers returning with shrapnel and bullet wounds to their hearts. And in this quite heroic series of 134 operations after D-Day, he, he takes on 134 cases of foreign bodies in the heart, operates, and nobody dies. And this is the first time that anyone's had such a sustained success in operating on the heart. And after that, and this is, this is the middle of the 1940s, after that, the continent of the heart is laid open for exploration by everybody. So, so the first successful civilian closed heart surgery doesn't occur until 1948. And, he, and in the same way that Amundsen races Scott, Harkin races a guy called Bailey, and those two just hated each other. The, um, the academic programs of the time always have Harkin followed by Bailey or Bailey followed by Harkin on the program because everybody else in the cardiothoracic community thought it was funny. Uh, and, and they just used to tear each other to shreds. In the event, Bailey does the first successful closed heart transplant, uh, first closed heart surgery. Harkin does the second, but Harkin writes his up first. Now, the other thing to know about those two sets of surgery is that of the first six people that Bailey operates on, five of them die. Of the first nine that Harkin operates on in civilian life in that operation, six of them die. 
Um, and, and so it's pretty dark, the start of heart surgery, closed heart surgery. And yet, nevertheless, having opened up this continent for exploration, the surgeons waste no time at all. And, uh, and 19 years afterwards, only 19 years after deciding you can take a knife to a heart and do something to it without killing the patient, they've transplanted one person's heart into another human being. So that's, that's 19 years. Having, having spent the entire age of the history of medicine to breach that two and a half inches. Uh, and yet suddenly they're there. Now the sequel to this story, Barnard's story, is that Within two years, there's almost an international self-imposed moratorium on heart transplants because everyone's dying. The technique itself works, but you need immunosuppression before the whole thing can be made survivable. And yet this is now something that we almost take for granted, or at least you know, it's, it's something that we don't marvel at as we once did. Now, what made that possible... Why was heart surgery there? Well, you've got to ask yourself that, because the received narrative is, is that it's, you know, the heroic surgeon. Uh, and yet, history was replete with surgeons who were skillful enough, arrogant enough, stupid enough to have a go at this. So why is it? And the answer partly is that there were other layers of technology in which we wrapped these people to garner their survival, uh, principally modern anesthesia, the, anesthe the anesthetic stopped being more dangerous than the operations around about that time, and blood transfusions. When you read the accounts of Harkin's first uh, operations on the hearts of the D-Day uh, casualties, they, they, there's an awful lot about just hosing liters of blood into these people as, as, as claret falls out onto the floor. So it's not just the surgical techniques. In fact, it's not mostly the surgical techniques. It's the cocoon of technology and innovation that we wrap them in to protect them from the insult that is that surgery. What else does she need? She needs intensive care. Now, intensive care is born out of a, a, a gesture, really, made against an epidemic that's sweeping through uh, uh, the world in the mid-1950s. Polio has stopped being a disease of, disease of, uh, uh, of uh, childhood because of better sanitation, better sewerage. And, has now, and now in, in developed countries by the 1950s, uh, when it arrives, it arrives in populations that have no native immunity to it. And so it's a much more devastating epidemic. And it causes paralysis. So this is a viral illness that, when infected, causes paralysis of the, uh, of the cells, cells in the spinal cord, which in the adult form very often causes respiratory paralysis. Now, there's a guy called Bjorn Ibsen who's learned the new art of anesthesia in 1953. Uh, he's just returned, uh, sorry, in the early 1950s, he's just returned from Boston, uh, and he decides that maybe the best way to get these people to survive is to take over their breathing for them by, by ventilating them um, mechanically. Now, he didn't use these machines. These are the iron lungs, and this is a photograph from Los Angeles. All he did was he did an operation whereby he cut a hole in the necks of these patients uh, under anesthesia. He placed a tube in and then sat there with a bag and blew up their lungs for them. And while you wait for that disease to abate or mature, uh, you can su support their ventilation and keep them alive. Now, mortality from polio in that epidemic went from 90% to 20%. So it went from 9 out of 10 people dying to 8 out of 10 people living just through that intervention. There is nothing that we've done recently that has looked anything like that. And yet this, too, is, as an act... It's a gesture against this epidemic, but he, he could have done nothing and it would have made no difference because vaccination comes in uh, around about the same time and makes polio. Polio is almost eradicated from the world today 
uh, it exists only in three countries in the world today. Uh, and so vaccination takes that out of our hands. So this innovation, although heroic and makes a massive difference in the moment, is not necessarily required, at least not for that. What else does she need? She needs a helicopter that can come out of the sky and get her out of that terrain, something that can stop in the middle of the air and tie her up. Now, where does that come from? Now, this isn't the 20th century, obviously. This is Dominic Jean Larray, a picture of... He's the guy who basically invented the ambulance. Uh, and his experience during the Napoleonic Wars was watching from the sidelines as uh, the artillery units, the heavy artillery units, would wheel and retreat from battle while the enemy would overrun the, the ground that had been left and the casualties that were lying there as well. And he turned around and he said, well, can't we just get the casualties out of there the same way we get the artillery out of there? And he was given uh, artillery wagons to repurpose and to sling the casualties on. He himself would go out onto the field of battle and, and remove these casualties. And he called these things flying ambulances. Uh, and uh, and they, in, in his accounts of it, it takes what is survivable from, he says that before this, anyone who had more than one limb amputation, required more than one limb amputation, just didn't survive. And afterwards, people with two, maybe three limb amputations could survive. And so that was a marker of how severe the disease of trauma could be and still be survivable if you got there immediately. Now, of course, ambulances don't fly until the middle of the 20th century, and that experience is born out of war too. The Korean War is the first time where they're using helicopters, in this case a Sikorsky, to evacuate uh, uh, people immediately from the field of battle. Uh, and it's the evolution of that helicopter uh, that becomes uh, the, one of the helicopters that rescues Anna Bagenholm uh, in uh, 100 years after Scott. Um, <coughs> helicopters that we take for granted now in civilian life didn't turn up in cities until about 1958, so California is the first place to get them, and now they're pretty ubiquitous. But that thing that you see in the sky here in London, that helicopter landing in the park to pick up some victim of a road accident or a stabbing is a complete and utter artifice of modern living. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist outside metropolitan cities, basically, let alone uh, uh, for most of the world. Uh, and yet it's an expectation we have of the lives that we lead. That if you're unlucky enough to be involved in something like this in London, that someone is going to drop out of the sky and scoop you up and save you. But that is, in this city, it's a couple of decades old. In the whole world, it's less than half a century. So that's what stands in the way of her survival. That's, those are the things, and there are others, that manage to conspire to create her survival. None of them are planned. Her survival is a happy accident of all those events strung together. None of them specifically was invented for her. She needs to go on to bypass and be reborn. She needs to go to intensive care. She needs to be get, got out of that hole very quickly. And no one had ever resuscitated anyone from so cold before when she was resuscitated. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, how, well, why are we that fragile? And how did we manage to make that difference in 10 short decades? Well, we're fragile mostly because of this. We are the most complex iteration of life that we know of. Uh, and that's partly because we're able to get power density into our cells to allow us to express the genome inside our cells to create a mechanism with enough moving parts to create us who can sit here and listen to a lecture by me contemplating why this is like this. 
With that complexity comes fragility. We are robust within very narrow limits. In terms of the extremes that support human life, uh, vertically, Felix Baumgartner showed us over the weekend that actually unsupported life vertically is about eight kilometers. You strap on some scuba gear, you get in the water, it's about five meters before you start to get problems uh, with sustained presence at depth uh, with decompression. In terms of temperature, temperature extremes, it's even worse, plus or minus one degree from your core temperature and you start to feel pretty lousy. So that's it. In terms of the physical envelope that supports human life, when you compare it to the physical extremes of the world, if not the universe, it's just absurd. It's this narrow sliver. But within that, there's this exquisite complexity that is also fragile. <coughs> How did we protect it? Well, we protected it mostly because of the Industrial Revolution and because of the innovations that we made that were able to wrap concentric layers of protection around it. And this is just one of them. This is the turboshaft engine, which is just there to please those of you who like watching Top Gear, really. But, uh, but, but, but the reason this is important is because you need to build an aircraft that has enough energy density power density in its engine that it can turn up at 200 miles an hour, it can stop dead in the air, it can throw air at the ground and pick a girl out of a hole. The Wright Brothers engine that's built in 1903 has 12 horsepower. The stuff that they had inside uh, the Spitfires at the time had a couple of orders of magnitude greater horsepower than that. And these things took it up another order of magnitude. Without that, you cannot have a device that does this. You cannot have a device that can sit there hanging in midair uh, and, and be capable of those feats. And yet, for those of you who've ever traveled in helicopters, you should know that they're terrible at flying. Uh, they, they, they are extremely fragile, and their envelope of performance is terribly narrow. There's lots, uh, there's lots and lots and lots of parts of it, uh, parts of its flight envelope that are extremely risky, uh, which is why, if you ever fly on one, they get you to, to rehearse how you get out of them. Now, this is a passenger airliner, uh, uh, and, and I'm sure you've all flown on planes, and you'll routinely ignore the safety video at the start. Um, I, I did actually stop and wonder why, why it was that they make you do this uh, uh, strange maneuver when you're flying, and I looked it up online. There's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. One of them says that you're, you're so unlikely to survive an airline crash that you do this so that your dental records are preserved so they can identify you afterwards, <laughs> which turns out not to be true, actually. Um, uh, so the reason that you do this briefly, and this is probably the best thing I can do for this lecture, is help you to survive an air crash, it is because um, when your plane comes to rest, not everything inside the plane comes to rest at the same time. And Steve Jobs invented this thing called iPads that are perfect for taking your head off when they're flying around the cabin. So you do that to reduce your body profile so you don't get hit by that stuff. Uh, and you tuck your arms and legs in so that your limbs don't flail. Because it's hard enough to get off a crashed aircraft without broken arms and, arms and legs. So you don't break your arms and legs if you do that. You don't get hit by stuff. And then finally, the luggage rack that's been overstacked by stuff is going to collapse. So that puts you behind, below the seat line and stops you getting clubbed by that. So it's all very merry. But do listen to the, the, the safety video. <laughs> I, 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 I went on some, some training uh, at, uh, um, at one of the commercial airlines, and they sat us down in a simulator and said, try and listen this time. It's going to be really important. And I, I was just chatting to the guy next to me in this simulator on the ground. And then they made the noise of the plane taking off, and then they made the noise of the plane crashing, and then they filled the thing with smoke and turned off the lights, and I wasn't expecting this at all. And they said, we've gone in the water, get your life jacket, get out of the plane. I didn't know where my life jacket was. <laughs> I didn't know where... Finally, I grabbed the life jacket and I looked at it, 
And I thought, oh, God, I don't, even, I don't even know how to put it on. That looks really complicated, I think. And they know, they know that you don't listen because I turned it around and on the back, in letters about that big, it said, put your head through this hole. <laughs> so, so, so um, yes. Now, look, when it comes to increasing power density and complexity, but also fragility, this is the vehicle that stands out in the 20th century. Saturn V goes from 0 to 25,000 miles an hour, delivers a man to the surface of the moon. Uh, and it's incredible, really. 1903, Wright Brothers, 12-horsepower engine. 1969, Hollywood studio. Uh, and a bit of fakery, or, or, or not, as the case may be. Uh, I, I've, I have met a number of the Apollo astronauts, and if it was a hoax, it was a pretty good one, because they're all convinced that they went. So, 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 so look, the point about this is that there is no adaptive physiology for this environment. You're entirely wrapped in multiple layers uh, to try and protect you from the, physiology, from, from, from the utterly hostile environment here. Your time of survival, if you unzip that seat right now, is about three minutes. Not even that, two minutes. You do survive for a while, and you don't explode. We can talk about that later. But, uh, but nevertheless, by the time we'd arrived at the middle of the 20th century, we were able to utterly, utterly replace the entire atmosphere that supports us here on Earth and allow us to go beyond the atmosphere and to walk on the surface of another world. Now, they talk about Apollo being an anachronism, but in my book, I don't really think it was. I think that this was the anachronism of the 20th century. And this is one of my favorite pictures. This is uh, Space Shuttle Enterprise being towed through the desert in 1977. This was the prototype shuttle. It's a real, real photo, okay? And in 77, uh, this is making it, snaking its way through the desert to be delivered for flight testing. And this is a picture of the old world meeting the new. And this is what we used to expect from NASA, that it presented the future on the back of a flatbed lorry, and it said, this is what it's gonna look like. Get used to it. Uh, and this thing flew. It was, it's, I mean, it's the craziest flying machine that has ever been built, it's the craziest flying machine that you'll see for some time. Because its engineering spec is outrageous. It goes from naught to 17,000 miles an hour in just over eight minutes. It gets into orbit and deploys as a platform for science. It can deploy up to three astronauts out of the back to do spacewalks. It can build a space station. It can launch satellites. When it's done all of that, it can reconfigure as a re-entry vehicle. At hypersonic velocities, it's designed so that it can soar at over five times the speed of sound so that it can choose a landing site or a much greater range of landing sites. And once through the atmosphere, it turns into a glider, which the people who fly it tell me reliably handles like a safe. Uh, <coughs> when, you, when you ask them, probably they say it's like a safe with the door open. Uh, and uh, uh, incredible. Incredible that anyone could turn up in the late 1960s and early 70s and say, that's what I want you to build. And an organization would say, yeah, all right, go and build it. And yet it flew, and this is a real picture. You know, this is a picture from the 1970s of that vehicle. Where are we now? Uh, we're at the International Space Station. And look, if you were going to build a space station, you probably wouldn't do it like this anymore. But we learned from that. This is 16 member nations agreeing on the format of a platform in space. And yes, it's outrageously expensive. And yes, it may not make good on its promise. But it's jury's out as to how we'll remember this in the future. You know, it may well be regarded as a complete waste of time. It may also be regarded as a necessary stepping stone and at which hard-won lessons were learnt. But these were scenes over the weekend of Endeavour, the last of the shuttles to be built, being towed through the streets of Los Angeles at two miles an hour. And it led some commentators to say, you know, is this the end of our explorations in space? Do we now fall back forever to Earth? 
Um, and I, I wish I'd been there for this. And this must have been an incredible spectacle. And you saw the crowds lining the streets. And you know, this would be like if you'd gone back to the middle of the 19th century and towed Beagle through the streets after it returned from this voyage of exploration. And Endeavour was an epic vehicle. It did the first Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission. It built the first node of the space station. Uh, it replaced Challenger after the Challenger accident. Uh, and it was one of the last missions to fly to the International Space Station before the shuttle fleet retire retired. And I don't think it will stop there. I think that um, the future will lie elsewhere in something more sustainable. Now, it lies probably with the likes of this guy. This guy is Elon Musk. Uh, he's extremely rich, um, and uh, he, he built something called PayPal, uh, which uh, made him worth more than $680 million. That's what he admits to, at least. And being extremely rich, quite bright, he said, I, I, can, um, I can build electric cars better than anybody else has so far. And that red thing behind him is a Tesla, uh, and it was a pretty good electric car. And then he said, do you know what? I reckon I can build rockets better than NASA in my own garage. Uh, and, and you know what? He was right, but he has a much better garage than you do. <laughs> and, 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 and so this is Falcon, uh, this is Falcon 9, uh, and uh, this is uh, one of the vehicles that recently launched in the last couple of weeks uh, to International Space Station carrying Dragon capsule aboard it. And he has made some outlandish claims over the last couple of years, but most of them have come true. He said he could launch these things, and he did. He said he could get them into orbit, and he did. That's the Dragon capsule. That thing can hold, theoretically, hold seven astronauts. That's what's going to replace shuttle. Um, and so people have started to shut up when they say he'll never do that, because he says he will. Now, he tells me that it's possible that by the mid-2030s, you'll be able to sell everything that you own and buy a ticket to Mars with him. And you know what? I mean, I nearly choked. I interviewed him for a Radio 4 documentary about that. I nearly choked when he said that. But he's made other claims that I've nearly choked on before, and, and he's made good on them. The future of human spaceflight has to become more sustainable. That's what happens in exploration. You have this flags and footprints thing that happens, and then nothing happens for 50 years. Scott goes to Antarctica in 1912, doesn't go back. No one goes to the South Pole again until 1956, and when they do so, they do so with, uh, uh, with aircraft that are... Uh, uh, that are cheaper and that have been built by the commercial aviation uh, uh, industry. When Magellan goes around uh, the world in the start of the 16th century, Drake doesn't go for another 50 years. We're not now just getting to the idea of commercial, commercially driven space flight 50 years or so after the guys landed on the moon. That's how it works in exploration. Every feat of great exploration feels like an anachronism because it is beyond and ahead of its time. We will go to Mars. We will go to Mars sometime this century. And I say that with confidence because if I was lecturing you in 1912 and I told you that we'd go to the moon and be building space stations, you wouldn't believe me. So you cannot believe me about the fact that we're going to go to Mars, but we're going to go. If the end of this century is different as the, as the end of last century is, we'll go there and we'll do a hell of a lot more. Um, there's a great line from Edgar Mitchell, who is, uh, I think, sixth man to walk on the moon, who tells us how fast the 20th century moved. And he said, when I was five, the barnstormer came to my farm, and I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. He said, when my son was five, I walked on the moon. He didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> and that's how fast that century moved. So why go? Well, I don't know why we go to Mars. We go for scientific curiosity. We go to find out those questions that we have about the ubiquity of life in the universe, probably the most formidable question that we can take on and answer in the 21st century. 
What else we have to discover, I don't know, but Scott didn't know either. He saw advancement in Antarctica. And he didn't know that in the ice cores and the bubbles of paleoatmosphere within would lie the secret, to, or the key to understanding the global warming of the climate, and knowledge that would literally have the potential to save the planet. He didn't know that in 1912. And if we were to talk about Antarctica in 19, today, as they did in 1912, you'd say, well, what's the point? It's made of ice. Uh, and, and what's the point in going? Uh, how we'll look back at the moon, space station, how we'll look forward to Mars, we equally, equally, we don't know. But I'll leave you with this from another heroic explorer of ages gone. Uh, this is, sorry, this is a quote from Captain Cook, 1774. And he achieves further south in the, in the end of the 18th century. And he says, no man, uh, sh no man will venture further than I have done and the land to the south will never be explored. 70 degrees south, he's at this point, and he's saying that. And then he hedges bets, and he says, anyway, should the impossible be achieved? It's no point. There's no point of use to no one. So no man will go further south than me, and if they should, it will be no use to anybody. And he was wrong on both counts. It's my last slide, because it's my favorite slide. This is where we are today, and the stuff that I say to you sounds outlandish. It always does. Um, but this is where we are. In front of that shuttle, for the younger members of the audience, is the crew of the first Starship Enterprise. Uh, um, the original and best Starship Enterprise. In the back is the Starship Enterprise, fact. And this is where we are always. This is where, we's all, all, where, we's, where we've always been, on the boundary between science fiction and science fact. Thank you very much for listening today. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kevin. Now, any, any questions? We've got some time for questions. This one at the front here. Have this for the moment, yeah. Uh, going back to um, the lady who was frozen in the ice, um, how much did the um, um, uh, medical people know then about the beneficial effects of freezing or cooling live bodies? And did they learn much about it after that event? So, so, so you, 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 you can't build a lot of knowledge on a single case only to know that that draws the boundary of what is survival. And she, she redrew the boundary. That case redrew the boundary of what is survivable. We knew at that time that rapid cooling of the brain will protect it in the face of loss of its oxygen supply. But we didn't know how profoundly or how far you can go. And certainly 13 degrees centigrade is the lowest that anyone's gone and survived. And three hours of downtime, I, I don't know any other cases that have gone that long. One over there. There's a microphone on its way. I, I always thought you did explode if you took a spacesuit off. Why don't we? Uh, yes, I think I did too. So, so, so this is really interesting, actually, um, because you know the reason they say you explode is because you go from you know, your, your body's built here to, to, to deal with one atmosphere of pressure, and when you remove that pressure, it'll explode. But actually, Divers do explode. So if you go from, and some of them dive at 200 meters, so 20 atmospheres, they do, ex if, 
and there have been some grisly accidents. Uh, what, what, that's why it's called explosive decompression, where these guys, they store them in these chambers that are under massive atmosphere, then they dive out of them, then they go back inside, and they go back into a ship that's on the surface. And, and with some uh, slightly cowboy plumbing events, uh, people inside have been rapidly decompressed atmospheric pressure. And at that point, any pocket of air in your body becomes 20 times larger. Uh, and and, and in, in addition to that, uh, the, the, the change in pressure across your skin and all of the mucous membranes is huge. So the force is enough to rip you apart. So when those have happened, they've literally had to go and find pieces of people inside chambers, very grisly. But when you're going from sea level to, uh, to vacuum or to, to high vacuum, the actual change in pressure across the membranes is smaller, so the forces disrupting those membranes is smaller. So you don't explode. Um, you, you, your lungs can undergo collapse because some of the thinner membranes. If, you, if you're ever in a rapid decompression, don't hold your breath. That's bad because your lungs will then uh, expand and you will get problems there. But you, your body won't suddenly explode. The other thing is that your blood doesn't boil. Now, the water in your body does, um, does reach boiling point at your core body temperature at 60,000 feet. But your skin acts like a bit of a pressure cooker, and your arterial vessels act, act like a bit of a pressure cooker. So it's only really the water in the low-pressure tissues and low-pressure vessels that forms these bubbles of water vapor. So, so uh, and that causes a problem because it causes airlock in the pipes of your circulation. So if you want to look for the best sci-fi uh, example, accurate depiction of what happens if you explosively decompress in space, it's 2001, uh, and and and. Your time of useful consciousness, the time before you pass out, is about 20 seconds in that event. People have done it by accident uh, uh, in the 1960s. Uh, and so if you watch that bit where he shoots himself out of the airlock and then recompresses the airlock, it's about right. So you probably, he probably could have done that. So Arthur C. Clarke was right again. Another question? Yes, here. Hold on for the mic. So in uh, traveling to Mars, I guess one of the biggest difficulties is protecting people from radiation. So how do we solve that problem? So, so um, good question, and one of the great unanswered questions. So outside of the Earth's magnetic field, we're unprotected from radiation, from, from heavy particle ionizing radiation. Uh, the magnetic field can pick up these highly charged particles and scoop them up and sieve them out so that we don't receive them here. Even on the space station, they're protected from that. Going between Earth and Mars, these high-energy, heavy charged particles will come through you and strip out your bone marrow and various other bits of uh, your physiology to great detriment. You can't build a ship made of lead. Even if you couldn't launch that, um, it wouldn't help you because these high-energy particles hit the lead like a cue ball hitting a billiard pack, and the shower of balls that follows it are at least as dangerous as the thing that came in. The thing that works is water. Um, but you can't coat the entire ship in this massive jacket of water. So what they're thinking about is building a bomb shelter type environment at the center of the ship, uh, surrounding that with the water that the mission has, and then relying upon better solar predictions of solar storms so that you can get the crew into there to weather out a solar storm. But, but when you ask the people who know about this stuff, they say we don't know enough. So it's a good question and it's yet unanswered. I think I'm going to have to close it there. The time is up. So for a very interesting and enthusiastic lecture on the technology of adventure, a great thank you to Kevin. Kevin Schofield.